She is seated in what appears to be a room that opens up to a vast landscape behind her, receding into icy mountains. Hushed grays, blues, browns, and greens show an almost otherworldly imaginary scene with only winding paths and a distant bridge bringing our imagination back to earth. The horizon line is painted level with her eyes, linking her inextricably with the landscape and increasing the intrigue of the figure herself. The enigmatic woman sits with pristine posture in an armchair, with her arms folded in a sign of her reserved posture. Her gaze is fixed slightly to her left, but still manages to focus on the observer and to follow one as they move around the room. She appears unusually alive, and her smile. Italian painter and biographer Giorgio Vasari would say, quote, In this work of Leonardo, there was a smile so pleasing that it was more divine than human, end quote. The mystery in the smile leaves us wondering what she's thinking. We may never know, but we know one thing for sure. The already famous painting would become the most famous painting in the world, possibly in part due to the fact that it was stolen from the Louvre in 1911. Welcome to Margs and Mayhem, where I tell you a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some, discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, make sure you are of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. In 1880, over 300 years after the mysterious smile was painted onto a slate of poplar, and about 30 years before today's story begins, French distiller Louis-Alexandre Monnier had the eccentric idea to combine French cognac with a rare variety of bitter orange from the Caribbean. It was the beginning of Grand Marnier, a grand name for a grand liqueur. That was, or maybe is, an official slogan. Not my words. So for this drink, we're going to go ahead and do the classic 3-2-1 margarita. So we'll take three parts tequila, two parts Grand Marnier, one part lime juice, and simple syrup to taste. We'll mix all of the ingredients into an ice-filled shaker and shaker, shaker, shaker up. Then do a little taste test to see if you want to add some simple syrup and go ahead and do that if you'd like. I wanted to stick with the pure Grand Marnier in the margarita, so I didn't add any simple syrup, but I must say it isn't a very sweet margarita. So if you like your drinks more sweet, then you'll probably want to add a little bit of simple syrup. You'll bougie bougie strain over fresh ice and drink and enjoy. Leonardo da Vinci was born over 400 years before Marnier in April of 1452. His childhood isn't really well known other than being born out of wedlock. Not that that really matters, but I think it kind of did back then. Around the age of 14, he became a studio boy in the studio of a Florentine artist where he learned many of the things he would use later in his life. And indeed, Leonardo da Vinci was the true Renaissance man. He was a student of ornithology, biology, botany, optics, and of course, flying machines. By his own count, he dissected over 30 corpses in his lifetime, 
making him really a master of anatomy and physiology and allowing him to paint super realistically. He mastered the arts of perspective and light and shadow in order to take a two-dimensional object, a painting, like the Mona Lisa, and make it look three-dimensional. Painted in Florence, Italy in around 1503, the Mona Lisa was an admired and influential painting even during da Vinci's lifetime. He called the eyes the window to the soul. That was him. And artists all over the country, they flocked to see this painting because it was so novel and the style was so unique. It took him a while to finish it. And some theorize it's because he sort of got distracted and had a lot of other commissions to work on. And others theorize that he was so captivated by it himself that he couldn't bear to finish it. He would later finish The Little Lady in 1516, which would be almost 15 years from when he started it. The painting would eventually pass on to his assistant, Salai, after his death. The story of Salai is an interesting one itself. And when he died in 1524 of an inflicted wound by a crossbow, see what I mean? The painting was valued in his estate at 505 lira, which I can't even calculate modern dollars because the calculators don't go back that far. But I think we can say it was quite a lot of money for a painting in that time. It was through Salai's estate that the painting would be legally acquired by King Francis I of France and held for viewings at first by only the French upper class. In 1797, the painting would be taken by the Louvre Museum and then for a while hung above the bed of Napoleon, which is kind of wild if you think about having the Mona Lisa hanging above your bed. Uh, but eventually it does head back to the Louvre where it's revered as really this example of Renaissance style and is pretty important and prominent in the art world. Prieto Vincenzo Perugia was born on October 8, 1881, just after the invention of Grand Marnier. He was a member of a respected family in Dumenza, Italy, and was the oldest of five children. He had three younger brothers and one younger sister. At the age of 12, he left his home, but instead of being trained to be a classical painter of paintings, he would train to be a house painter a painter of houses. All right, here we go. Let's take a little lead poisoning break now, shall we? Evidently, people in the late 1800s started to become a little germaphobic, probably because they were just learning what germs were. And a lot of them decided to remove what had been on their walls previously, wallpaper, because they believed that germs were getting inside the little cracks in the wallpaper, you know, between the different pages, I guess. and. So they wanted to take that down and replace it with paint. Lead paint, to be specific, because lead paint could easily be wiped down and cleaned of all those nasty germs. Hmm. And with that, the demand for house painters jumped high enough for people to start filling their lungs with lead and also for them to start hiring 12-year-olds. Ugh. 
Because of the prolific nature of lead in paint during this era, it's really safe to say that Vincenzo really did have lead poisoning, both in childhood and adulthood. This is actually proven by the fact that in his early adulthood, he was treated twice for lead poisoning. And anyone that got lead poisoning bad enough to be treated, well, they got real bad, real bad lead poisoning. There's a lot of research that shows the really bad things that can happen to people who are poisoned by lead. In children, it can lead to a whole host of neurological issues, and in adults, it can lead to that as well as marked changes in behavior. As a 20-year-old, Vincenzo made the pretty obvious step of leaving Italy. The economy at the time, turn of the 20th century, was very bad in Italy, and young men couldn't find work anywhere, and so they they left the country in droves, many of them going to Paris like Vincenzo, where his fate and the mysterious smile would collide. For over a century, the Mona Lisa had been one of the most prized possessions in the Louvre. In the early 20th century, the main problem at, at art museums wasn't really theft. They weren't really worried about theft. It was actually fire. As you can imagine, there's no sprinkler systems and response times from fire departments is pretty slow. And so because of that fact, these paintings weren't actually bolted to the wall, but in fact, they were just nailed to the wall, just like you would nail a painting in your own house. Another concern was actually vandalism. Disgruntled Parisians would often just walk into the Louvre with a knife or a pair of scissors and slash precious art. And in fact, two masterworks had already been defaced at this point inside the Louvre. And so they made the step, which was sort of unpopular, to start to put some of the more famous paintings in the Louvre behind glass. Vincenzo, who'd taken a break from lead ingestion and poisoning himself to work for a glass company, was one of the five men tasked with cutting and hanging the glass in front of these art pieces in the Louvre. Vincenzo didn't have it easy working in a different country. There were a lot of really prejudiced French people living in the country at the time. They would often insult him, call him dirty macaroni, which I guess because Italians eat a lot of pasta. I don't know. I sort of consider it a mild insult, but I don't have too much national pride or a brain addled by lead poisoning, so I'm not gonna judge Vincenzo. And as he was working in the Louvre, he began to notice that there were actually quite a few paintings in that French museum that were created by Italian artists like da Vinci. One morning before he started work, he actually flipped open an art book and discovered that Napoleon had actually stolen lots of art from Italy that was now hanging in the Louvre. The Napoleonic looting of art is not a myth. It lasted nearly 20 years and resulted in the pilfering of over 600 pieces of Italian art alone, many of which were hanging in the Louvre. Conquests, trophies of victory, and between these things and his lead-addled brain, Vincenzo Perugia, he was getting angrier and angrier, and he started to make a plan. On August 21st, 1911, Vincenzo, who hadn't actually worked at the Louvre for something like eight months, decided that today was the day. He put on his white work jacket, which would allow him to blend in, and walked the almost two miles to the museum. 
On Mondays, you see, the museum is closed for cleaning. And on a regular day where there might be approximately 500 guards in the Louvre, on cleaning day, there were 12. So not only did he not come across a guard when he just straight walked into an unlocked door in the building, he didn't see a guard the entire time he made his way to the gallery where the Mona Lisa was. He went into the gallery and I guess he just looked around and, and picked a painting. He hadn't decided that he was going to select the Mona Lisa until that moment. He probably picked it because it was the smallest in the room. And he just plucked it off the wall and carried it with him to exit the building. He decided to take a different way out of the building that would get him out of there faster, but required him to walk down a service staircase. When he got to the bottom of the staircase, he jiggled the door handle and it was locked. And then he didn't quite know what to do. He pulled a screwdriver out of his pocket and tried to unlock the door, but he only managed to take off the door handle but not get the door to open. So he slipped the door handle into his pocket, the doorknob into his pocket, and then he heard footsteps coming down the stairs. That's when he really didn't know what to do. So he sort of stashed the Mona Lisa to the side, you know, where you can't see it, and sat down on the stairs. The man came down the stairs and tried to open the door. <laughs> there was no doorknob and said, do you know what's going on? Vincenzo just said, I, I don't know. And the guy did not question him, probably because he was wearing the jacket and he didn't really know him. If it had been one of the other glass cutters in his company, he would have been caught. But because it was just another random worker, that guy just, I think it was a plumber, just unlocked the door, went out and closed the door behind him and locked it again. So Vincenzo, not knowing exactly what to do, grabs the Mona Lisa, puts it underneath his work coat, and just goes out the same door that he came in. As he's walking down the street next to the Louvre, he pulls the doorknob out of his pocket, tosses it into the grass, and then hops on a bus and goes back to his apartment. Oh, I forgot to mention kind of a crucial detail. After he didn't quite know what to do and he was on the stairs and the plumber had exited and left him locked, he couldn't actually fit the Mona Lisa under his jacket with the frame. So he took the frame off of the painting and, and just put that into the service stairwell and then carried the Mona Lisa out, not in her frame. Important in just a second. So after Vincenzo takes the painting out, no one notices for a whole day. You see, it was not really uncommon for the Louvre photographer to take paintings down off the wall to take pictures for souvenirs, postcards, that kind of a thing. And there wasn't a formal checkout system and nobody really knew who was taking what when. So the next morning at 11 a.m., an artist actually came in and he inquired about the painting. Like, where's the Mona Lisa? Then a little bit later, a guard discovers that frame in the stairwell. And this leads to some, some pretty distinct panic. They call in police officials. They're searching everywhere, all the drawers. They really, they think it's a prank at first. They think there's absolutely no way someone would actually steal the Mona Lisa. They eventually close the museum for the day, lying and saying there was a water main break so that they could continue to search the museum. But the Mona Lisa wasn't there. 
When the truth was discovered, the people of Paris were heartbroken. They flocked to outside the museum in droves, leaving flowers for the missing woman. Though she was revered in the art world, the Mona Lisa at the time didn't have the same kind of pop culture significance that she does now, and so they printed flyers that had her face on them to distribute all around France to hopefully figure out where she was. News of her disappearance made it all the way over the pond to America, where the Washington Post actually posted a picture of her on the front page that was, was the wrong piece of art. So if that gives you some kind of indication. Several newspapers gathered together to offer a pretty hefty reward for her return, and people started being real shady and like turning in their neighbors, even though their neighbors definitely didn't have the Mona Lisa. It was kind of a wild time. And a once in future pretty famous artist would get kind of tossed up in the fray. His name? Pablo Picasso. You see, Pablo got a little mixed up in the art stolen from the Louvre Museum situation when he unwittingly bought some statues from an art dealer that had been stolen from the Louvre. Whoops. He actually incorporated them into some of his paintings. Whoops. When he found out they were stolen, he tried to dispose of them. Whoops. He was actually brought in for questioning by the Parisian authorities, but was later released and obviously exonerated. Suppose that was the right move because you and I both know that the real person who had the Mona Lisa was Vincenzo Perugia, the unsuspecting glass cutter. And for two years, and I'm not kidding, two years, he actually hid the painting in several places inside of his apartment. He was even questioned once by police and they did not find the painting. He constructed several hiding places himself, but he was known on occasion to take her out of those hiding places to eat breakfast with her. During that time, he was also writing letters to his family back in Italy, alluding to the fact that they were going to get a very big prize soon. So, national pride and revenge aside, I suppose money talks. After spending his mornings with Mona Lisa for two years, Vincenzo decided that it was time to go back to Italy and to try and sell the painting. He sends a letter, cryptically, in November of 1913 to an Italian art dealer, which he signs Leonardo. When they did meet up, Vincenzo demanded half a million lira, which equates to $2.4 million in today's American money. Sounds like highway robbery to me. He also insisted that it should be hung in the Uffizi, which is the Italian equivalent of the Louvre, and that it would never be given back to France. The Italian art dealer who meets up with Vincenzo at a hotel sees the Mona Lisa and, you know, has his internal shocked reactions and asks Vincenzo if he can actually take the painting to the Uffizi to get it authenticated. And Vincenzo says yes. And he says he'll just wait at the hotel until the art dealer returns. So the art dealer takes it to the museum where they do indeed authenticate it as the real painting. And Vincenzo just waits at the hotel. He's never suspicious. He never has any idea of what's coming. And what's coming next is that it is not 
a million billion dollars arriving at the door, but instead, the police, who arrest him. For a time, the Mona Lisa hung in galleries around Italy to rapturous audiences before being returned to its rightful home in France. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. France acquired this painting legally. They paid for it. They bought it. That kind of didn't matter to some people in Italian circles. And that, as you can imagine, caused the trial to be somewhat of a spectacle. People sent him love letters and cakes and wine in jail. They didn't really care that he was an art thief and that he had stolen a legitimate French painting at that point. His sole defense was that he had stolen the painting for Italy, which seems a little odd to me considering that it took two years and the thought of 500,000 lira to stop him from staring at her at the breakfast table. He would jump up in the middle of the trial, sometimes even onto the table, arguing with the judge, the prosecutor, and even his own lawyer. He was full of contradictions. At one point, he says that he took the Mona Lisa because he was bewitched by her, which might have been true, and needed to rescue her and bring her back to Italy. At one point, he says he had fallen in love with a woman who was the exact doppelganger for the Mona Lisa. When that woman died, he just had to have a painting. Ah. Sometimes he acted alone. Sometimes he acted with accomplices. Eventually, a psychiatrist for the defense would testify that in 1880s terms, Vincenzo Perugia was intellectually deficient. There are a lot of conflicting accounts about the actual amount of time that Vincenzo spent in jail, but the Italian tribunal probably softened by the fact that they were kind of glad that the Mona Lisa had come back to Italy at least for a little while, and also by the fact that they probably believed that cognitively he wasn't able to make the best decisions, they did not give him a very large sentence. In fact, he was in jail for for sure less than two years total. Fairly quickly after that, Vincenzo Perugia would go to serve in World War I. He would actually be captured and held as a prisoner of war for Austria-Hungary for two years. When he was finished fighting in the war, he actually went back to Paris, if you can believe it. Probably wasn't the most popular guy in Paris, but I guess he liked it there. He decided to go by his given name, Pietra, so sort of like a hidden identity. He got married and he had one daughter whom he named Celestina. So at one point, he even brought his wife to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa. This guy, he's got some cojones, I gotta say. Prieto Vincenzo Perugia would die of a heart attack in 1925 on his 44th birthday. He would leave behind a toddler daughter and a widow who would actually marry his brother a few years later. He is buried in Paris, but actually also has a grave marker in Italy, purchased and placed by his daughter. So what do you think? What was Vincenzo's real motive in stealing the painting? Nationalism? Revenge? Love? Money? Was he acting alone or were there conspirators, as many people did eventually say? Why do you think he held on to it for so long? Do you think, as his lawyers did, that there were cognitive issues at play? How does an ordinary, humble man pull off what some might say is the greatest art heist in world history? And do you think the theft of a painting 
can increase not only its popularity, but its value? Would we even know about the Mona Lisa today if it weren't for Vincenzo Perugia? Anyway, poor Vincenzo. I, I can't help but like the guy. A, a man with humble beginnings, but seems like he had his heart in the right place or the wrong place. I don't know. He is a very likable character. Maybe it's the mustache. The Mona Lisa was relatively unharmed while in Vincenzo's care. She just left with a few abrasions. And yes, that is the actual technical art term. But she has been a target in several other incidents since then. In the early 1950s, a man claiming to be in love with the Mona Lisa cut her with a razor and tried to steal her. Maybe, maybe he didn't realize that she was painted on wood. Also, you probably shouldn't cut the one you love with a razor blade. I digress. After that point, she was fully encased in glass to protect her. In 1956, a Bolivian man threw a rock so hard at the glass that it actually chipped a piece of it, which lodged itself into her elbow. In 1974, when the Mona Lisa was on tour at the Tokyo National Museum, a woman actually sprayed the, the glass with red spray paint as a protest for not providing appropriate accessibility measures for people with disabilities. Not sure what the Mona Lisa had to do with that, but who knows? Because she was behind glass, she was unharmed. Lastly, in 2009, a Russian woman distraught over being denied French citizenship purchased a ceramic teacup from the Louvre gift shop and chucked it at the Mona Lisa, shattering just the teacup. I'm guessing they probably don't sell those cups in the gift shop anymore, but who knows? Today, the Louvre is the world's most visited museum. There are 8 million people who visit the Louvre every single year. That's 20,000 people a day. And of those 8 million, it's estimated that probably 6 million of them are there just to see the Mona Lisa. She's what's called a destination painting. And yes, that's a real term. A painting in which someone will literally travel just to see that painting. A bucket list item for many people across the world. For a painting that's 30 inches tall and 20 inches wide, and to stand in a line for hours, like standing in airport security, to see a lady with no eyebrows, hmm. I think I'll stick to the reproductions. Oh, and for the record, Da Vinci actually did paint eyebrows on the Mona Lisa, but deterioration that's natural and some overzealous restorers led to the uh, covering up of her brow caterpillars. They can be seen with a megapixel camera, however. The insurance assessment for the Mona Lisa would be equivalent to about a billion dollars. And yes, I do mean billion with a B. But as we learned in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, episode, it's, it's priceless. She's priceless. She cannot be replaced. Doesn't matter what monetary value you put on her. She's essentially uninsurable. And some believe that the mysterious woman with the gaze that appears to wander and yet always at the viewer, the painting with no visible brushstrokes and no sketch done before she was painted into life itself, would not have gained the level of fame and popularity it had without the humble workman with the handlebar mustache, Vincenzo Perugio. Thanks for hanging out with me. 
I hope you took my Grand Marnier challenge and went ahead and made the drink with us this week and had a nice drink as you were listening to the story of Vincenzo. You know what I'm going to do and you know how to get me to stop. Head over to all the social media accounts, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and like and subscribe on YouTube. And if you all do that, I'll stop asking. If you're wondering what we do on each, on Twitter, we do our Today in True Crime History Facts. On Instagram, we ask questions and continue the discussion. You'll go to TikTok if you don't have enough time to listen to 25 minutes of an episode. And head to Facebook because that's where all the boomers are. Next week's episode covers another modern cult and whew, it's a doozy. Highly recommend that before you listen, you actually head to McDonald's because McDonald's plays a part in the episode and pick up a slushie of your choice. I am gonna go with the blue raspberry. So it's going to be a blue raspberry margarita for your drinking pleasure next week. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murder and stealing a painting that doesn't belong to you or your country. 